And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe, where faith and reason intersect each week. And your questions are really important. I'm Doug Keck. You can email them to us at spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. And check out the wisdom of Father Spitzer through his websites at themagiscenter.com, purposefuluniverse.com, at spitzercenter.org. The last one is an org, so check that out. And, of course, this wonderful program, Father Spitzer's Universe, we like to think of it that way, is always available on our EWTN YouTube channel and our EWTN On Demand page, constantly expanding. While on our On Demand change, you might want to check out Footsteps of Polish Saints with another great Jesuit, Father Mitch Pacwa. He leads an exciting pilgrimage to Poland to explore shrines and important Polish saints like St. John Paul II, St. Maximilian Kolbe, and St. Faustina Kowalska. You don't want to miss it. And it's all for free and all on demand anytime you'd like right on our on-demand website. So you couldn't ask for it to be any easier. And our topic today, Intrinsic Dignity of All Human Life, from Father's book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, available naturally through our religious catalog. And the book of the month for EW10, sounds like a father book, but not quite. New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God by our good friend in Spain, Jose Carlos Gonzalez Hurtado, who you can see on Father Mitch's show coming up shortly in the near future. But speaking of immediately, we turn to Father Spitzer out on the West Coast and welcome once again in Mr. Universe. Great to be with you again, Father. <laughs> Great to be with you, Doug. And let us begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience and staff, that everything we do and say may be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father. It was great to be back with you. A couple of uh, stories before we get to a plethora of uh, questions that people have questions. for us. Uh, here's one story I thought was interesting. Um, Crux actually put it out. Uh, says, a new poll shows Irish mothers of young children prefer to stay at home. Now, this is a shocker for some, not for us, of course. Uh, <laughs> This is a new survey, says more than two-thirds of mothers with children under the age of 18 in the Republic of Ireland would prefer to stay at home with their children rather than have to go out to work if they could afford it. The research survey uh, said that 69% of mothers with school-aged children would prefer to stay at home with their children rather than go out to work if they could afford it. In addition, it's found 76% of mothers said that women who work in the home are undervalued by society compared with women who work outside the home, and over 70% of mothers do not feel valued by society for their work as mothers. Meanwhile, you know, ultimately at the end of life, there's no one more valued than mothers. As we always say, the football players don't wave at dad, they always wave at mom. So yeah. uh, we yeah, always feel bad exactly. that they don't, but society has turned it into like, well, what do you do? You know, well, if you don't have a job, outside the home, it's like you're not doing something. Yeah, well, it's basically, what am I doing? I'm shepherding these little eternities mm -hmm. uh, into the kingdom of heaven, 
And while I'm doing it, I'm integrating with other families that are doing the very same thing. And we're constituting a church and constituting a culture that goes, you know, contrary to the regular uh, secular culture, uh, which is um, basically shepherding people uh, toward darkness. And so we're doing a whole lot of things. And by the way, um, all the things that we contribute to the schools, all the things you contribute to the church, uh, whether you acknowledge it or not, we know that they exist. And I don't need any acknowledgement from you or the secular culture to prove any value in my life. Mm -hmm. If at the end my children get into heaven, if at the end my husband gets into heaven, and if at the end I inspired a whole bunch of friends to get into the kingdom of heaven, I could want for nothing more because that effect will last for eternity and all the rest of this mm -hmm. stuff of I made more widgets or I increased the profit per share in this particular division isn't gonna amount to a hill of beans. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing what I think is the most eternal, the most effective, and of course, I think the most ecclesiastically uh, um, uh, proficient and also uh, the most culturally uh, effective solution, mm. um, you know, the, the most, the best contribution she could possibly make is right through her motherhood, right through her home, right through being a good spouse, right through being a good friend, right through being a good worker and colleague at church, right through being a, mm. a good worker and colleague within the culture and the community organizations that she serves. Go for it. Right. You don't have to, what, you couldn't get any more value than what you're doing in that regard. You know, I mean, my mom was a chemist uh, before she became a mom of five of us. Well, mm -hmm. the three boys gave her a run for her money, I'll <laughs> tell you. But the, the main thing is uh, my dear, dear mother, I mean, look at all the effects she had on the world by shepherding the likes of us uh, into, into shape. And, mm -hmm. and um, like I said, she gave up her chemist position. Okay, she could have worked on some enzymes. She could have done this or that. So what? My mom had her values right on the mark. Mm -hmm. She's a daily communicant, and of course, she uh, uh, not only prayed for us mm -hmm. and shepherded us. I mean, she served so many people. I mean, I, I think I told this story probably in the program already, but one time, you know, when my brother um, uh, was uh, uh, 4F from military service and during Vietnam War mm -hmm. um, because of uh, uh, kidney uh, difficulties, mm -hmm. um, um, she uh, decided to go to work in Tripler Army Hospital um, in the burn ward mm -hmm. uh, to do service for the guys who were serving uh, in Vietnam. And I just remember one time, this is the kind of thing that a mom can do. But I, I came home at Thanksgiving, I think I was a, a freshman in high school, and I see all these caterers out there putting out tables and so forth and so on. And I went over and said, Mom, what in the world's going on here? And she goes, oh, I, I decided to invite all the boys um, in the Triple Army Hospital that could be moved uh, to come over for a Thanksgiving party at our house. Mm -hmm. And impudent little idiot that I was, I said, well, Mom, don't you know that Thanksgiving is for the family? Mm -hmm. And my mother just came whacking back at me and just going, these are our family. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> so I got the idea in a hurry. But when I saw the effect that that woman had, Mm -hmm. on every one of those guys they were coming out of there I mean this is like you know every one of them thank you Mrs. Spencer this is the best uh, Thanksgiving ever we didn't think anybody even 
knew we existed. We just, right. you know, thought we're just sitting here injured uh, from this war all by ourselves. And, and you, you're, she was so appreciative and expressed your thanks uh, to all the guys that were there. But the main thing was mm -hmm. she was handing off all this food to them on the way out the door. And they go, can we keep all it? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, anyway, we had, uh, uh, you know, as they say, the cast of thousands. Right. Well, they weren't really cast of thousands, but they were cast of 60, 70 guys with all of their, uh, wow. the, um, uh, you know, the workers that were there, uh, you know, to help them out, you know, because they, they, they mm -hmm. couldn't be on their own. Uh, they're still injured. But right. the main thing was it, it was so, it, it just kicked my mind into gear of what really mattered and how my mom always seemed to know it in her motherly wisdom. And of course, I was the usual, I call myself the idiot of the heart mm -hmm. for about the first uh, 20 years of my life. So, uh, but eventually my heart caught up with my mind, but much of it was thanks to my mother. Mm -hmm. And I just wanna say, thanks mom, I know you're in heaven watching me now. You were a really good mom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Right, and, 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 and so you took something that probably initially struck you as something that was going to be a horrible Thanksgiving as probably one of the most memorable ones yeah. you ever spent, right? Absolutely, right. without question. Right. Just watching those guys thank my mother mm. with such utter sincerity. I mean, these are guys that get blown up by Claymore mines, everything under the sun. I mean, it's some really awful injuries, awful mm. injuries. And you know, and the burn horn, I can't, I, you don't, you can't right. even imagine, you know, and, and so, I mean. Especially uh, back in that day, when they gratitude. didn't have even as much yeah. the, the ability they have now to deal with those kinds of things, you know. Yeah, In the sense oh, yeah. of medicine, oh, yeah. medicine and let I mean, alone plastic surgery and stuff like that, that they can do. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, her little act of love and her little act of care probably meant more to them than a whole lot of other things they'd ever right. experienced in their whole life. Right. I mean, a mother's love and care, even if it's toward the extended family, shall mm -hmm. we call it, um, it can really be hugely significant, not only to uh, you know people like me, mm -hmm. uh, but also to the people who are actually experiencing that wonderful uh, Thanksgiving there um, at our house. Well, that's how you deal, deal with despair, too, which is the fact that people feel that no one yeah. cares, right? That's really... What comes, it exactly. doesn't really matter what happens to me. No one cares. So, Yeah, that's Mother Teresa's whole logic. Right, right, absolutely. Here's another yeah. story that kind of related to what we were talking about last week on some of the stuff in Europe, but on a different level. Uh, Father Patrick Colosino, an English Catholic priest and neurologist, has been vindicated after being investigated by a UK medical regulatory agency for giving his expert opinion in an emergency end-of-life case in which he called for further tests before cutting off hospitali a hospitalized man's nutrition and hydration. Uh -huh. uh, apparently, right. uh, the man referred to ultimately died in 2020. There was some legal battles in the family, as you can imagine. Uh, shortly after the man's death, a complaint was brought against uh, the, the priest by an academic researcher and end-of-life planning advocate um, in 2021, yeah. accusing the priest of yeah. bias because of his Catholic, quote-unquote, pro-life values. Okay, uh, the priest, yeah. uh, Palacino, said in uh, Christian Concerned press release that he's relieved at the decision and added that the complaint was a clear discriminatory attack on his medical opinion because I'm a Catholic priest and believe medical professionals should do everything possible to save another's human life. So there he is, 
trying to help somebody and save somebody's life, and in the world we live in today, becomes the villain. But at least they're waking yep. up in some. Places. I mean, uh, yeah, it's like the police becoming the bad guys. I mean, they just you, you just can't believe what you're seeing and reading. You know, black is white and white is black, mm. and until we destroy yeah. ourselves on the basis of our inverted logic, and I would even say our dark logic, till we do it, we won't learn our lesson. We believe the propaganda that we bake up. We even believe the transparently false lies that are, uh, you know, made up in order to benefit a particular political viewpoint. Mm. And uh, you know, if you want to do, put yourself in that position, go right ahead. But the truth will set you free, and that's what you got to remember. I mean, like when I sat down to write this book, *The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church*, I had so much data from so many secular surveys. I couldn't hold myself back. I felt like a damn ready to burst. I really did. I mean, just to expose the incredible lies, the incredible errors of omission. And remember, errors of omission can become lies very, very easily mm -hmm. by just simply, you know, uh, failing uh, to, uh, to, to state what all the relevant facts are. Mm -hmm. And so, at the end of the day, um, again, as I am probably overusing the expression, we have to uh, wake up. We're mm -hmm. going to have to um, uh, expose these lies right. and start living according to the truth. The more we believe in our own lies, the more, more we not only jeopardize our own individual lives, right. our spiritual and emotional health, the more we allow the culture and the people we support in the culture to degenerate as well. Right, absolutely. So like I said, we have a lot of questions, so we wanted to get to some of those and move past the okay, new stories. Uh, Dear Father Spitzer, I'm in my mid-twenties and I wish to discern the religious life. In the last two years, I've increasingly gotten the sense that I may not belong in the secular world. My current line of work often leaves me feeling drained and unsatisfied. I've experienced a profound deepening of my spiritual life and I want to consider exactly what the Lord is calling me to do. The thought of giving up my current life completely for God leaves me excited yet apprehensive about certain things such as how to bring it up to my family. What would you recommend as a first step in my situation? <coughs> and this is Andrew. Well, Andrew, um, there's two questions there. The first question is, you know, how do I discern it? And I would just begin, first of all, I get a spiritual director. Uh, one that you like and trust, um, that more or less uh, corresponds uh, to your spiritual ecclesiastical view. And tell him that the reason that you're doing this is because uh, you're interested in pursuing a vocation. But if there's a strong interest in you uh, to become more saintly, if I can put it that way, in other words, to appropriate the virtues and to move away from the deadly sins and other such things, well, that would be uh, a first. If that's in you, if that mm -hmm. desire for moral conversion is there, that's great. <clears throat> Second thing to test for is, do I have that genuine desire for service? <clears throat> do I want to make a difference mm -hmm. to the spiritual lives of the people around me? And would I consider, you know, making that, that difference to the spiritual lives of people? Do I think that's a, a purpose worth living for? Could that be so significant and so central to my life that I would want to live for that and live for that alone. Thirdly, when I talk about those first two things with the Lord, my moral conversion and my desire to serve, 
Do I find myself growing more and more in love with God, wanting to serve Him? Do I have that sense that He's calling me, that mm -hmm. the Blessed Mother is reinforcing me, that this is where they want me to go? Now, a good spiritual director is going to go through these things with you, right? Mm -hmm. He's going to basically be taking, he's going to say, hey, you know, what's your desire for moral conversion like? He's going to say, hey, you know, what's your desire for service of the spiritual lives of, of others like, you know? Mm -hmm. He's going to go that, uh, through that with you. But your prayer life in all of this is so significant. Mm -hmm. And within the context of your prayer life, do you find a greater intimacy with Christ, the Blessed Virgin, when you are, you know, thinking about these things of, you know, moral conversion, when you're thinking about these things of service, do you get excited and fascinated, desirous uh, to really get out there and make a difference in the world? And then in light of those three things, right, then you turn around and say, okay, mm -hmm. would these be uh, more than enough for me to get my full purpose and meaning in life? Mm -hmm. Would this, these be enough for me to say, at the end of my life, I've lived a good life. I've done this well. This was my true purpose. If, if you can say that and you say, yeah, I, I wouldn't need uh, to have a family. Mm -hmm. um, I don't need uh, necessarily the deep intimacy. There's a difference between wanting and liking something mm -hmm. versus needing it. Obviously, if you need deep intimacy, emotional intimacy, with a person, and you couldn't really live without it. If you find yourself, uh, you know, needing a deep intimacy with children uh, of your own and so forth, and you couldn't live without it, well, that would be a, a contrary sign. Mm -hmm. But if those things are not there on the need basis, not the want basis, but the need basis, mm -hmm. if they're not there, uh, maybe you really do have a, a vocation, and I think as you discern that with your spiritual director, uh, that person um, is going to try to make sure that you're following the right path, you're not just talking yourself into it, that you're not just painting, uh, you know, uh, technicolor and fantasy land on one hand mm -hmm. and darkness on the other hand, but that you're being very objective in the way that you're doing that, that your spiritual director's gonna make sure of that, then I would say um, that you're probably um, heading down the right track if you're being affirmed in those three areas and being um, your spiritual life, mm -hmm. your moral conversion, your desire to serve uh, apostolically, evangelizing, etc. If that's really there, then I, I think he's going to you know, say to you, hey, uh, go right ahead and mm -hmm. uh, start um, uh, pursuing this uh, course of action. Now, how do you tell your family members? Well, mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I, you know, I had a parent who was very much uh, um, in favor. I had a parent who was not uh, mm -hmm. so much in favor. Um, you, you kind of have to thread that according to the needs of the person there. Uh, you know, my father's main concern, uh, and God bless him because it was his genuine concern. I love my dad very much. He loved me very much, mm -hmm. but he thought, you know, well, you've been brainwashed. Now he was not a Catholic, mm -hmm. and uh, but he, he really thought, you know. Uh, uh, somehow you've been brainwashed, you know. Uh, and here was his quote, I could never really be happy without your mother. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that you would be too. Mm -hmm. But there is, you know, the old analogy. It's a weak thing. And I tried to say, well, Dad, you know, even though we come 
as it were, from the same genetic heritage and the same wonderful family, and your principles have always affected me throughout my life. I have to tell you, I'm not identical to you uh, in terms of where I find my calling and things of that nature. Now, it was kind of tough, um, you know, for him to sort of take that at first, but then he ran into my uh, wonderful novice master, Father Gordon Moreland, who, see, I, we were not as novices allowed to go out to dinner, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, at fancy restaurants uh, with your parents uh, when you were in the novitiate. But um, uh, in essence, though, uh, my dad, uh, my mom invited Father Moreland, the novice master, out to dinner with my dad. Mm -hmm. And Moreland, it was just so great. He, he played it the exact right way. Mm -hmm. I mean, essentially, he, he's sitting there at the table, and uh, he was, showed my dad, you know, uh, that he was very bright and very deeply holy man. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and my father, toward the end of the meal, uh, he was kind of one of these Harvard attorney types, <laughs> uh, very scrutinizing all the time and so forth and so on. And, and he basically, at the end of the meal, he said this to Father Moreland. He said, you know, you know, if you're an example of, of what a, a Jesuit priest would be like, well, maybe Bob won't be wasting his life after all. Mm -hmm. And my mother goes, you know, of course, you know, she, she's just letting this thing play out. She goes, oh, yeah, she didn't want to say anything publicly <laughs> to Father Moreland. But the next day, you know, on the phone, thank you, thank you, thank you. for mm -hmm. you know, Because somehow, whatever Moreland did mm -hmm. in his own indirect way, he showed my dad, hey, he's happy mm -hmm. and he's fulfilled. And he has a lot of talents, mm -hmm. and those talents are fulfilled. And so all of a sudden, it kind of calmed down. So do I have uh, advice for you how to get started? Mm -hmm. I would just say it, if I were going to start with anything, do what I did. I just would tell, first, if you have a parent that favors it, mm -hmm. and maybe a parent that doesn't, like in my case, I'd start with the parent, obviously, who favors it. Mm -hmm. And I, like in my case, I was telling my mother these things. I'd say, Mom, my religion is becoming the most important thing in my life. Mm -hmm. I'm not so much interested in taking over the family businesses. I'm not so much, you know, interested in, you know, uh, uh, you know going to law school. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really thinking right now that, um, the f that, my religion is the most important thing in my life, and I'm really thinking that I would like to serve in a more direct way. And so that, if you just can slice that in there mm -hmm. uh, in a way where you can start saying, my priorities are changing. You know, okay, yes, I did want to pursue the law. Yes, I did have a gift of the gab, and Dad always saw that as a, a good lawyerly you know, thing to have, mm -hmm. take over the law firm, take over the family businesses, it'd be a good thing. But at the same time, uh, to just start mm -hmm. saying my priorities have changed. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking now that my priority is I'd like to serve God. I'd like to serve the kingdom of God. I'm falling more deeply in love with the Lord. I just think I've got this real drive within me to want to serve the kingdom and advance the kingdom of God. I just got this drive in me where I, I really want more time with prayer and I want more time to spend with the Lord specifically in that relationship of prayer. And by the way, I'm getting interested in my moral conversion in a way I 
I really never mm -hmm. thought of before, you know. And uh, and because of all of that, I'm seriously considering this. Right. You know, my mom came out right away, and she just said, you know, um, you can have both if you want. I just read this Time magazine article on the permanent diaconate mm -hmm. uh, in the Catholic Church. So she sent me the article. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought, okay, well, that's a solution to my problem. I'll become a deacon. And my mom said, whatever you do, uh, get married before you become a deacon. Otherwise, can't get married. So right. of course, my mom is always searching for things that reconcile. But anyway, the long and short of it was I'm coming out of the church and I, I see this book that's, you know, mm -hmm. at the back of the church. I was going to daily mass at the time. And uh, that's another sign, by the way. If you're going to daily mass and you really like it and you can't miss it, get ready. Maybe there's another sign there. But anyway, so I'm coming out of the church and uh, I see this book. It just catch out of the corner of my eye on being a priest. Mm -hmm. And half of my brain just said, read that book. Mm -hmm. And the other half of my brain said, don't read that book. <laughs> But I went ahead and I read it. I stood right back there at the back of the church, read the whole thing through. And I just thought, ah, I don't want to just be a deacon. <clears throat> I want to be a priest. Well, I don't and think you do anything halfway. I think that's probably part of you, too, you know, in that calling, right? It is. Right? I figured. Yeah, now, exactly. We, well, now, in relation to your dad, I wanted to... Now, were you the oldest son in the family? So were, were you the heir apparent to the family business? Or, <clears throat> or where did you fall in the, in the, in no, the grouping? No, I was the second oldest son. Okay. But um, I definitely was interested in the law, mm -hmm. definitely interested in business, definitely interested in helping to expand uh, the family businesses. Okay. Uh, things of that nature, and I showed a, a real interest in, uh, um, you know, uh, okay. coming in and maybe not just taking over, but, um, you know, trying to, to make the family businesses <clears throat> into a bigger um, uh, transaction and right. into a bigger um, uh, grouping than they had been previously. Okay. So <clears throat> that was my basic intention, and Dad could see it, and, and of course, he played on that and definitely wanted, um, well, you know, he gave sure. money to Harvard, so, you know, his alma mater, so I could get right. in and so forth, or right. help me getting in, not, not so that I could get in, but to help me to get in. I mean, he, he clearly wanted that, and, and God bless him. I mean, all he wanted for me was the very best, right. uh, but he just thought I was making a big mistake. But all that changed around, and he got used to it um, by the time he passed away. Right, okay. Uh, we got a couple of minutes. We want to see if there's a long question. We'll see if we can get it in. Maybe Bob. Okay. Dear Father Spitzer, I'm a healthy 34-year-old stay-at-home mom with two healthy children under five. My mother-in-law has repeatedly brought up to my husband that she doesn't think we should have any more children because of the risk of having a baby with a chromosomal abnormality, autism, or some other disability is so much greater for me now with each passing year. I told her that we believe God is the author of life, being open to life unless there is a grave reason not to be as part of our faith. She counters by saying that God also wants us to use proper judgment and control and that awareness of increased chances of a disorder should be considered quote unquote grave reasons. What's your opinion? Should a couple continue to be open to conceiving children even as the woman ages increasing the risks of problems? Thank you and God bless Jessica. Now she's talking about she's 34 so it's, it's not like yeah. she's ancient. Uh, there's plenty of room there yeah. for children still. <laughs> right. 
uh, that are normal. So mm -hmm. uh, this is called the premature panic button. And so uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, um, I would say uh, you are really free to do so, um, to continue to, um, to be open to children. There should mm -hmm. be no guilty conscience and so forth and so on. That's the first thing. The second thing is, okay, you start approaching your 40s, um, you know, then, uh, yes, I would say, you know, there is an increased chance and statistics, the studies uh, show um, that uh, a down uh, child is certainly a possibility. Mm. Now, uh, you know, the idea of then, um, you know, being more careful, uh, you could do that um, if you want to, um, uh, but also down children are not the worst thing that can ever happen uh, to a family. They are not a curse at all. And as I've said many times on this program, down kids often wind up being sometimes the main motivation for the non-down kids uh, to become better people uh, and to they, they take responsibility for that child, but they also see the goodness, the transcendence, and the love of God that is burning through this kid, mm -hmm. uh, even though he or she may have difficulties in certain uh, areas and certain challenges. Uh, nevertheless, it, they're, they're the beauty of these children and uh, their goodness, uh, their love, love and their lovability, their transcendence, their faith. I mean, if you've ever lived in a large community or even just gone to dinner, um, you know, as a guest in a large community, I mean, you're going to be blown away right. uh, by the goodness of these kids. You just are going to be blown away. So the, the main point, though, is that uh, I would say you've got another six years, um, you know, before, or at least another five years before you're really going to have to confront right. uh, some question. If you want to space it out, natural family planning is a great way to do so, right. um, you know, and uh, uh, to just see how, how you want to handle it. Okay, well, thank you very much, Father. That was great. You got that in in time. We're going to take a break. Much more ahead with your <laughs> questions on Father Spitzer's universe. Answers ahead. Stay with us. And thank you so much for staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe. And we've got today's topic being the intrinsic dignity of all human life from Father's book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. But first, we've got a bunch of questions still to get to. Next up for Father, dear Father Spitzer, in Corinthians, St. Paul said he offered the gospel free of charge. Now, did the apostles get paid for preaching the gospel? Thank you for clearing this up for me. We love your show. This is Elena. Elena, well, of course, the donation basis has always been the basis um, of the uh, of the church. So mm. uh, you'll notice that St. Paul doesn't charge mm -hmm. uh, for anything. He just goes out and he preaches the gospel. And then he says afterwards, hey, if you want to support this ministry or support the church in, Jer in Jerusalem, uh, you know, who are, they were get, having their struggles. Mm -hmm. And basically he says, go ahead and make a donation. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I return or when Barnabas comes or Timothy comes, uh, they'll pick up the donation and bring it to Jerusalem or, uh, you know, distribute it uh, here um, to help the poor people 
uh, in your community and outside your community. So it's always uh, was based on a donation basis, but nothing was ever charged right. uh, for it. It was basically uh, um, offered freely, and then if somebody wanted to give a donation, they gave of any kind, uh, 10 cents to whatever, $100, it was their um, right. you know, choice. And the Lord always said, you know, a worker is worthy of his pay, so I mean, the idea that yes. you know, shouldn't be thinking that, you know, well, you're not supposed to do this for free and not ask anybody. So we live in the real world. You still have to be supported in yeah. some fashion or form. Next up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay, dear Father Spitzer, I've been going yes. through the Bible in a year. Now, in Leviticus, the concept of the scapegoat is discussed. The sins of the people were laid upon the scapegoat, yeah. and it was driven out by yeah. Azazel, a demon in Jewish tradition. Yeah. What is the significance yeah. of God having the Israelites present an offering or sacrifice to a demon? This is from Bob. Well, Bob, the whole idea is that uh, the demon drives, uh, uh, it's, not it's not doing that to a demon. Uh, essentially, uh, what it's, the, the Israelites certainly believed, and remember, there is moral development, mm -hmm. and there is uh, ritual development in the Old Testament. Remember your three stages. The patriarchal stage, the mosaic Yahwistic stage, the later prophetic stage, before you get to the fullness of revelation, uh, which is Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So you can't evaluate everything in the Old Testament in the same way. You always got to go through those developmental stages and see where things are. Well, the whole idea of a scapegoat, of course, comes, uh, it's, it starts in the patriarchal um, era. It makes its way to the Mosaic Yahwistic era um, where it is still used. The idea of, you know, the demon, uh, you know, t chasing away uh, is uh, an expression or use of demon in the sense of not a diabolical, um, you know, spirit, but mm -hmm. a, a daemon, you know, it's basically, a, um, you know, a, a, a spirit that, uh, um, you know, you know, some, not a neutral spirit, mm -hmm. but a, a, a scary, almost a mischievous a spirit, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, uh, that basically comes uh, and, um, you know, uh, uh, incites and, you know, the, to scares the, the evil, uh, basically, out of uh, the scapegoat who's uh, running away and, mm -hmm. and so forth. So the idea, of course, is it carries away the sin of the people. Mm -hmm. But the instrumentality of the daemon um, is, uh, is uh, certainly a part of it, but nevertheless, um, the idea uh, is um, you're pr coming to this religious ritual before God mm -hmm. to put your sins into the goat according to the prescript of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. So it's Yahweh's ceremony. And even though there's an instrumental effect of the daemon with respect to the, um, uh, to the mm -hmm. uh, 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 goat uh, being, as it were, uh, ushered into the desert, the main thing is it's Yahweh's ceremony, right? It's Yahweh's prescription. It's following the law mm -hmm. of the Lord, right? The Lord is the translation right. of Yahweh. So the idea uh, is pretty clear. Uh, we're doing this before God, and it's a ritual ceremony right. that God right. has enacted and permitted to be a, a form of the release of sin. But that changes, as you can see. Mm -hmm. uh, it moves more and more to ritual uh, sacrifices 
uh, of animals. And then finally, of course, by the time you get to the later prophetic period, you see all kinds of ways of uh, looking at the release of sin uh, through some kind of prophetic activity or some form of repentance. Then finally you get to Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm the one. I'm the new scapegoat. I'm the new Passover lamb, and I'm the new sin sacrifice. I'm going to take away your sins definitively. Me, the Son of God, not just the Messiah, but the Messiah who's the Son of God, I'm going to do it as the new Lamb of God, the new Paschal Lamb, right? There's not going to be an animal anymore that's going to be the instrumentation through which sins are forgiven. I'm the mediator of the forgiveness of sins and the self-sacrificial act and the unconditional love that is being manifest on the cross, that will become yours through me, through the Holy Eucharist and through the sacrament of confession because all of those, like when the priest absolves you from your sin in that confessional, he's taking that act of unrestricted love in the total self-sacrifice of Jesus for us, he's pulling that unrestricted love right in through that uh, absolution blessing. That's the power of the forgiveness of sins. So powerful that it not just absolves and releases you from sin, it releases you from the effects of sin, it releases you from the grip of the evil spirit, it releases you from everything. And the same thing with the Holy Eucharist, too. The two worst enemies that the devil ever ha uh, had were the Sacrament of Reconciliation and the Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And they're all empowered by the unrestricted love created in that one act of total self-sacrifice on the cross. So that's the new mediator, the new forgiveness of sins. So when you uh, kind of look at these things, be careful. Mm -hmm. Remember your lessons. You've got to, which age did this come from? Right, right. Patriarchal, Mosaic, later prophetic, or Jesus? Right, and also, you know, you have to deal with the, the culture at the time, the people at the time, the education, what they were experiencing, oh, yeah. what they would have understood symbolically was going on, right? Yeah, quid, quid, recipiturist, recipiter and motor recipientes. In other words, whatever's received is received in the manner of the receiver. No. So what are you talking of the receivers? So in other words, as Aquinas long ago noted, right, if, you're gonna, if God's going to, um, you know, give his message to somebody, he can't give a message which nobody can understand. Right. He's going to have to give a message with what, uh, you know, Ratzinger would call the external form of the expression, right? Mm -hmm. He's going to have to give it in human terms. And the human terms in which he's giving it to us, right, uh, in order to communicate with the people of that time, he's going to have to do it in a way that's non-inerrant. In other words, it's changeable. Uh, you know, in other words, the core message is never changeable. Mm -hmm. It's inerrant. But in every core message, it's wrapped in the external form of the expression, which is meant to appeal and to get access to the people and the culture of the time. Mm -hmm. So you have to uh, basically keep looking at this, and those things can change. Mm -hmm. uh, and Ratzinger is absolutely correct about this, and so that's why you can see, you know, there's, you know, what if the biblical author says, okay, um, I'm going to now tell you 
uh, about how the world was created. And instead of presenting it in the same way that he does, using the categories of the Enuma Elish and the priestly account of creation, right? Instead of, you know, uh, doing it that way, he says, in the beginning was a quantum cosmological configuration that lasted for 10 to the minus 20 second seconds. And then it unraveled into a special and general relativistic configuration where space-time took over the functions of gravity. And then it unraveled into a series of what we would call uh, forces, the electroweak force mm -hmm. unified with the strong nuclear force, and the electroweak rolls off the strong nuclear. And then we get into the, you know, the, uh, the Higgsian era and so forth. The, right. These people in the sixth century BC, what, what? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, they're not going to be able to figure out anything. Right. It's just going to look like this is the the craziest thing they ever heard. Of course, God has to wrap the expression and the inspiration of the uh, biblical author mm -hmm. in the language, in the categories that are can be accommodated mm -hmm. by the time and by the culture of that person Absolutely. or people. So that is the uh, the basic thought. Okay. Let me ask you one last question because it's kind of related to yeah. the Old Testament. Dear Father Spitzer, in the book of Exodus, God would not let Moses see him, saying man cannot see his face and live. What does this mean? Is there a physical danger seeing God's face or is there some other meaning why he cannot be seen? This was Dave's question. Well, yeah, Dave, it's certainly, um, uh, pro both uh, literal and, and symbolic. Uh, from the literal point of view, I mean, obviously God doesn't have a face like we have a face because he's an infinite being. But if we were to see, uh, you know, as it were, the divine face um, in, in the sense of, you know, in the divine nature, right? Now, Jesus had uh, a human face in a human nature, mm -hmm. and he's the second person of the Trinity, who is incarnate in a human nature, but if we were really to see, as it were, the face of God, it wouldn't have the same kind of face um, that we would have. If you saw the face of God, it, it would be something akin to the expression of the emotion and the love and the intelligence of the divine nature, uh, you know, just as a, fa a human face can express what's going on, the intelligence, the emotion, um, you know, of, of, of uh, a person at any particular point in time. Mm -hmm. Well, if you were to see that uh, in reality, of course, it would be, you know, you couldn't take it in. Mm -hmm. It would be so utterly mind-blowing, so utterly fearful, so utterly overwhelmingly powerful, mysterious, and fascinating, you would never be able uh, to take it in. So, you know, nobody can see the face of God and live. Mm -hmm. Well, now, of course, <clears throat> you know, you have uh, uh, Moses, and he's just reflecting, mm -hmm. as it were, um, the face of God. So he has to keep his face veiled, right? Um, uh, so, you know, the, because, of course, still even then, it, it would overwhelm you uh, in its entirety. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, God is merciful to us in not letting us have access to the fullness of his mind and his heart and his love and his power all at once. Mm -hmm. uh, it would just blow all our circuitry, as it were. <laughs> and so uh, he does it according to what we can deal with at the time. As my old friend Father Domenico would say, little by little. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, 
Okay. Uh, that's, uh, that's the main thing. Okay, we'll move on to uh, the, the book, uh, page 294. Uh, we're talking about a conclusion. In chapter 3, explain the justification for the intrinsic dignity and inalienable right to life to all human beings, regardless of their state of development, capacity, etc. One question I have is so many times, uh, it seems like in general, most people, even people who aren't religious, believe there's some intrinsic dignity an inalienable right to life of all human beings. They may argue about when that life begins, but they seem to think there's this intrinsic dignity. But if there's not a God, where does this dignity come from? Well, I mean, um, there, there are secular arguments for it and there mm -hmm. are transcendental arguments for it. And, um, you know, Jefferson, for example, borrowed both. Mm -hmm. So he wanted both a secular version and but he, at the end, he says, were endowed by their creator with the inalienable rights. Mm -hmm. So Jefferson appeals to both. Um, the guy who developed uh, rights theory, Francisco Suarez, mm -hmm. uh, in his work, De Legibus, uh, way back in, the, uh, the in 1512 to 1520, mm -hmm. when he developed, um, you know, De Legibus, uh, he basically appealed to both as well. Mm -hmm. But for the sake of, like in the UN uh, Charter of mm -hmm. Human Rights, uh, the UN Charter does not appeal so much to a creator or to God, but uh, is, you know, the principle of justice. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you are not willing to be just to somebody, then of course there's no need to be, uh, for them to be just to you. So there's something in the logic of justice Right. which says that if you want justice for yourself, you have to extend justice to others. We know this in our conscience. Mm -hmm. We know that we can't say, hey, listen, you have to be just to me, but I don't have to be just to you. People are going to say that's not fair. Mm -hmm. So you can build an inalienable rights theory simply on the necessity of the equality of justice, not just because it's fair play, but because it's the only way in which justice can work. Mm -hmm. So you can make the argument on the basis of the requirement for a just society is inalienable. But, but how do people agree on, course, if you, on what is fair? How does somebody decide universally what is fair? You know, it's the argument they'd well, say, uh, is it fair that somebody yeah. gets paid more to do work that's on a higher level? Or is it fair yeah. that everybody gets paid the same no matter what? Which one of those is fair? Well, yeah, well, this is where the inalienable rights theory of Suarez was a real manifestation of genius. Suarez says, I don't want to talk about fairness in all these business transactions. Okay. I only want to talk about three fundamental kinds of fairness, which I consider fundamental justice fundamental fairness without which you cannot be or act like a human being. Mm -hmm. So what are those three manifestations where we absolutely need equality? If you want to live, you got to let other people live. That's mm -hmm. the first one. Right to life. Everybody would say, hey, you know, if you're going to ask that your uh, life be protected, you got to protect the rights of others. Otherwise, it would be 
unfair. Now, will a few tyrants say that's not true? Yes. Right, right. But will the vast, vast majority of society agree with this? Yes. And, and Suarez actually makes that appeal. He basically says, everybody's going to agree with this except a few tyrants. Mm -hmm. The same thing, uh, he doesn't call it liberty. Uh, Locke and, um, and uh, uh, Jefferson call it liberty. But basically, Suarez calls it the right of self-governance. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you're going to be and act like a human being, you have some right to govern yourself. If you can't govern yourself in some way and somebody, you're going to be the property or you're going to be governed by somebody else, then for all intents and purposes, you don't have um, any, you know, you're not being a human, you're not acting like a human. Uh, you know, which of course free so autonomy, will is the deal, I mean, right? Basically, some yeah. amount of autonomy. No autonomy, <clears throat> right? That's right, and no autonomy. That extends to your family mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. So it's not just you, but it's your family. So he said, everybody's going to agree on this. Nobody's going. And finally, the um, uh, uh, Suarez had two others: property and the pursuit of happiness. Now, property—that's easy to see from Suarez's point of view. He says. If you don't have some property, something that belongs to you, then you can be reduced to indentured servitude. Mm -hmm. Why? Because if I, you, everything you stay, so your home is my property, and your bed is my property, and your job and your, the food that you eat, it's all belonging to me. You buy it from the Spitzer Company store. Everything is controlled by me. Are you free? for self-governance. Mm -hmm. No, you are not. I can turn off the spigot and control you at any time I wish. So Suarez says you got to have some private property. you got to protect the rights of private property. And Aquinas, by the way, agreed with this as well. The fourth thing is the pursuit of happiness. Now, you know, if you use happiness in a trivial sense, right. like I feel happy, well, that's one thing. But that's not what Suarez or Jefferson or Locke, or the UN Charter believed in. Uh, they basically believed, uh, you know, that um, you could be, uh, you know, what I call the four levels of happiness. Mm. That happiness really is about fulfilling your purpose in life. Mm. In other words, that you have the right to make your life better. So part of being human is you can use your creativity, your energy, your courage, your fortitude, you know, to make a better life for you and your family. Mm -hmm. So that idea of happiness is much more about not a feeling, but more about the state or condition of life. And that obviously includes religion. That's a huge part of making, you know, so you, you got to have religious freedoms um, would be a part of not only self-governance, but the pursuit of happiness. It also includes, of course, having some um, a custody over your domicile, right? A man's home is his castle, etc. So all of these things um, are present, and they're such fundamental forms of justice that we all know we have to, in order to be fair, we have to guarantee if I want you to have a, a path to make a better life for yourself, you got to grant, if I want to be granted that, I got to grant you that. If I want to grant you self-government, if you, if you're going to grant me self-government, I got to grant you self-government. If I'm going to grant you life, uh, if, uh, excuse me, if you're going to grant me life, 
I'm going to grant you life. So we know that that fundamental equality is there. So mm -hmm. that's how they actually did the argument. Now, okay. Jefferson himself, uh, he believed, you know, that, that, well, you know, I wonder whether this really um, can be bolstered by the creator argument. And even though Jefferson was definitely a deist, mm -hmm. he was not a religious man, he definitely believed in a creator. He believed in an intelligent creator, and he believed in a just creator. And so he truly believed, right, that, um, you know, that we should all see that we are a mystery that is beyond mm -hmm. any, um, you know, s simple grouping of physical processes and structures to explain. That there is something what we might call in the general sense spirit or soul in humanity that is beyond the mere realm of physical processes and structures. These guys were enlightenment individuals mm -hmm. and they knew uh, even still uh, without any religious sensibility that there, ha there was something like the human spirit. They appealed to it all the time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but the main thing and to remember is when they do appeal to it, they basically are, uh, are appealing to um, something beyond the physical. Mm -hmm. So in doing that, he says, okay, um, we are endowed, you know, not only in our own right, according to justice, but we're endowed by this creator with these inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So ingeniously, Jefferson takes both arguments mm -hmm. from Suarez. Uh, Locke also took both arguments um, from Suarez. And in the end, uh, of course, the UN Charter mm -hmm. really took not so much the creator one, but the uh, justice and equality um, one, because of course they were trying to appeal uh, to the world in the UN Charter. But Jacques Maritain, I'll tell you, mm -hmm. that guy had a lot of input into the United Nations Charter on Human Rights. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you, uh, Jacques Maritain was a very important Catholic philosopher. Mm -hmm. And he was also a very important Catholic humanist. And he did a great deal of work uh, on that UN Charter. And I think it is a really a work um, that is tremendous. I know it's in the UN, but that charter really represents the spirit of inalienable rights as best we can have it. And that, at the end of the day, as I use the expression again, <laughs> inalienable rights will help us to know what is essential. In other words, the positive law can't trump everything. Mm -hmm. The positive law, in other words, a law that comes from a legislature or a court, the positive law can't trump inalienable rights. Right. So you can't have a positive law that violates the right to life. Oops, violates the right to liberty in terms of slavery. Oops, uh, violate the rights of uh, property into indentured servitude. Violates um, the right mm -hmm. to pursue um, what you need, uh, not only for happiness in the present, but to make a better uh, life for yourself and your family. Very good. So those things are untrumpable. There you go. Perfect timing. Right on the money. We'll ask you now, Father, you can rest your voice and give us your blessing oh, yeah. on the way out the door. That'd be great. Absolutely. And bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all justice and love, may the Lord of all consolation send you his spirit to show you the true intrinsic dignity of every human person and to spark within you the desire to defend that with every fiber of your being 
knowing that it is in the defense of life itself, the goodness of life itself, the intrinsic dignity of every human being itself, that our very civilization rests and that we are responsible for it in every quadrant in which we have influence and send you the desire to make that message known wherever you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Very good. Father, take care of yourself. We want to make sure we see you in, in good shape next time. <laughs> A lot more questions ahead. <laughs> of course, we hope to see you as well when we return here on Father Spitzer's Universe. His books and DVDs are nationally available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. Next week, we'll be answering your viewer questions, so send those in. And EWTN's bookmark, Science and Reason and Faith, Discovering the Bible with the one and only Father Robert Spitzer, an interview we did out at Napa. Check that out. And the total gift, the Catherine Drexel story, is in a wonderful program Sunday, March 3rd, 2.30 p.m. Eastern right here on EWTN as we continue moving on through Father Spitzer's universe. We'll see you next time.